So it's really um, felt like a, a day well spent um, practicing here together at IMS in this what's felt like being in a in a ship or a boat together in this slightly stormy weather, uh, the wind and the snow outside. Um, it's felt very containing and supportive. I'm always very aware when we come to this center to practice how much practice has happened here over the years. And because of that, there's quite a strong holding and containment for, for us coming into this retreat now. Um, so it's been, um, it's been a, a really lovely here to be here today and do this work together. Um, tonight I'd like to continue on from the theme that Kirisaro uh, introduced this morning, which is uh, the practice of mindfulness and samadhi, or right, uh, usually translated as right concentration, but we prefer to call it gatheredness of the energies of body, mind, and heart within awareness. These, this mindfulness and samadhi are the, the last two factors of the Eightfold Path. And the Buddha taught a path, a path of awakening, a path uh, to, for us to actually walk for ourselves and to cultivate a path that leads from the state of suffering and stress and confusion and being lost and overwhelmed to a state of peace and insight and clarity and accomplishment. It's a path that's not so necessarily, uh, in some ways it's a path that's going in time from one point to another, sort of a linear path, but more profoundly it's a path that's really deepening us into the reality of here and now, because ultimately that's all there is. The perception of time, the perception of tomorrow, the memory of yesterday always can only really happen here and now. So as we enter the path, we're entering the practice that takes us more deeply into our experience, deeply into our contemplation of what is here and now, what has been here and now for us today has been being with the body, being with the mind, being with feelings, uh, being with whatever has been present for us. And uh, to use that experience of what is present for us to hone our contemplation and our practice. I'd like to um, share a teaching from our teacher, uh, one of our primary teachers, Ajahn Chah, who we both met many years ago. Um, Initially, I met Ajahn Chah in England when he came to Britain in 1977, quite a long time ago. And um, then I met him in Thailand and uh, he was uh, Ajahn Chah was a very one of the most influential contemporary meditation masters. He passed over in 1992. He was a forest monk in, in northeast Thailand, and uh, lived that lifestyle from the age of 13 until when he passed over in his 70s. And uh, during that time, he wandered through for the first 20 years of his practice. 
Um, he wandered through the forests of Laos and Cambodia and Burma and Thailand. When there were forests, of course, many of those forests have been cut down now and lived as a very simple mendicant monk. And uh, during that time, he honed his meditation and he met his teachers, one of them being Ajahn Man, who was considered one of the greatest meditation masters that there's been. And Ajahn Man uh, fundamentally pointed Ajahn Chah to contemplating the mind, his mind, very directly. Before that, Ajahn Chah had been very concerned with trying to get the conditions of his, uh, of his monastic life, uh, bringing them to perfection and following the rules perfectly, the training perfectly, and so on. And, but Ajahn, Ch- Ajahn Man pointed Ajahn Chah to the real place of practice is the mind itself, what happens when there is contact with the experience of the world, what arises at the place of the mind. And in this way, Ajahn Chah had a revelation and it completely shifted his whole practice. And he understood from that point, of, from that point onwards how to practice with the conditions of the world. And in a certain way, I guess, stopped seeking for the perfect situation to practice in or the perfect framework or the perfect set of rules and the refinement of the rules to actually realize that, uh, that it was actually the, the real issue is the mind, the heart. That's the place where there's suffering arises and that's the place where suffering ceases. That's the place where transformation happens. That's the place where awakening flowers and matures. So anyway, Ajahn Chah was a, was a great master and he also he had a, a patient for being able to transmit the teachings to Westerners. And um, by the end of his life, he was oversaw over a hundred monasteries, both in Thailand and in the West. Um, and often when people met him, he would he would attune his meeting with whoever came before him uh, in the service of awakening. So he was quite a fierce master and took every opportunity to to wake people up. And was in that way quite uh, fearless and very present and very humorous, but also sometimes he had this style he called stabbing the heart, which meant, you know, like to really make an impact and certainly that was the case for me he made quite a powerful impact in a very short space of time to such an extent that it led me eventually actually also in quite a short space of time to taking the robes and and um, living as a monastic myself for about 12 years although I didn't really have a lot to do with him after my initial meetings because he became very ill and um, had something like a stroke and the last 10 years of his life, he wasn't able to speak or teach and was semi-paralyzed. So he had a lot, he had a lot, uh, he had a very tough life and a lot to work with, including not an easy, ideal um, aging process. It's actually very difficult. And one of the things Ajahn Chah said was, uh, which is a teaching that I, I really like and value and come back to again and again, and it's very typical for the way that he taught, was know and watch your heart. It is pure, but emotions come to color it. Let your mind be like a tightly woven net to catch emotions and feelings that come 
and investigate them before you react. Know and watch your heart. It is pure, but emotions come to color it. Let your mind be like a tightly woven net to catch emotions and feelings that come and investigate them before you react. It's a very simple teaching, but a teaching that could actually um, protect from so much that is unfortunate that we can, that we can uh, do as human beings to just catch those moments before we react when there's a, an impression or an impingement upon the mind or the heart and it stimulates our reactivity. And sometimes in that reactivity, we can find ourselves doing or saying things that then we have to live through the consequences of and we can regret. This practice of mindfulness, in a way, is uh, sometimes the Buddha called it the flood stopper. It kind of is a break. It stops and it gives us a moment to reflect on the impingement and our reactivity and then transforming our reactivity into a wiser more clear, effective, and appropriate response. I've been thinking about this quote quite a lot because when I just left South Africa about two days ago to come here, back to the US, and just as I was leaving, as some of you may have heard, um, some of you may not, depending on how much you keep up with news, but uh, just as I was leaving the country, the, the news was breaking of um, one of South Africa's sporting hero, Oscar Pistorius, who, if you remember in the Olympics, the London Olympics last year, was, became famous because he was, a, he was a disabled and running in the, wasn't in the Paralympic, he was running in the, uh, the, um, the regular Olympics against fully able-bodied people with his... Um, you call those blades that he wears. Do you remember him, Oscar Pistorius? Uh, he'd had, when he was young, when he was a baby, he was born without any um, bone, in calf bone. So his parents took the decision when he was about one years of age to have his legs amputated be- be- beneath the knee, which was you know, a pretty devastating operation. But from very early age, he was encouraged by his mother not to really uh, feel himself to be disabled and he had um, you know, prosthesis legs and grew up in, in a regular way and joining in everything else that his brothers and his schoolmates did. So he was actually quite athletic and then later in his life he became you know, a very amazing athlete and then um, succeeded in this incredible way of uh, winning at the Olympics and winning many other medals and becoming really a a great hero and a a person of great hope for a a country. South Africa, of course, is a country that has been very deeply wounded um, through um, not only the more recent history of apartheid, which everyone knows about, but it it has a, a very brutal history that's gone back centuries and so it has a collective sort of um, woundedness of its soul really and so such cultures then you know the 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 need for heroes and the need for 
for those that kind of shine and hold a positive persona for the country becomes all the more greater in a certain way. And uh, this, is, this was really um, something that Oscar Pistorius held for the whole country. And in a certain way, also for those um, that are physically disabled and overcoming these great odds to be a, a world champion. And a great, great projection onto him and a great sort of idealization of him. And then on the night of what is usually dedicated for remembering romantic love of Valentine on the 14th of February, the, the news broke that he had shot and killed his beautiful girlfriend, Riva uh, Steinkamp. So this has been very shocking, and I've been with that news since it happened the last few days, and um, you know, um, with the shock for both the country and for the families, and for um, this, you know, considering the causes um, and you know the reasons maybe of why this event had come about, and knowing that it's going to turn out to be a very complex process with involving lawyers and court cases and denials and defences and you know on and on it goes. So, but this um, this moment of you know just a moment of reactivity, a moment of when uh, great passion. Uh, arose for Oscar. One doesn't, we don't know exactly the story, but there wasn't any ability to restrain and reflect. There was just this reacting out, acting out of violence um, with a devastating result. And he, of course, in, been in court weeping and full of regret and the loss of his loved one at his own hands and then the loss of his stunning career and the loss of a, and a sort of a crashing down to earth of a, of a hero, a shattering really uh, within a country, uh, scrambling to try and understand such an event. And of course this, this happens, you know, this happens all the time in a way. It doesn't happen on such a big scale of someone so public, but these events happen all the time in not only a country like South Africa, but here in America, there's been some real devastating events um, th through violence recently, and you know, um, yeah, I don't have to tell you, <laughs> living here, <laughs> what's been going on here. Uh, so there's, you know, this this is not only America, but in so many places, this 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 moment of when uh, the passions hit, when the, the mind is influenced by delusion or hatred or greed. And then there's this pr profound reactivity that can happen and actions that happen that have devastating consequences. And then having to live through those consequences. So the, the, you know, these, we can look at others that act out and from violence and think, well, it only happens to, to other people or people that are very disturbed but it can happen to anyone. It can happen to any one of us because this is the human condition. As human beings, we are susceptible. The mind is susceptible and vulnerable to being influenced and overwhelmed by the energies as, as the Buddha 
diagnose these three core energies of greed, hatred, and delusion, that, that we are susceptible, both personally and collectively, to being influenced by these energies. And as a result, if there isn't any discernment, if there isn't any pausing, if there isn't any restraint and wise reflection, we can find ourselves just, just in a moment you know, diverting the whole course of our life or others' lives or a whole, the lives of a whole nation through acts of great devastation and cruelty and violence. Yeah, so, you know, Ajahn Chah, another thing he, he used to say, you know, people would say, well, why bother with this practice? You know, why bother with this sitting here and cultivating? In this kind of context, you know, it's like it's a bit of a strange thing to do, being mindful of your breath, inhalation, being mindful of your exhalation. What is the connection between that and what I'm talking about? Um, you know, it's patient practice, little by little. We're not in a state maybe of great reactivity. We don't think of ourselves as someone that could, you know, perhaps um, land up doing something really regrettable. Uh, we're good people and so on. Why don't we just go ahead and live our lives? But Ajahn Chah used to say, he said, this practice is preparation for the moments when the passions do hit the heart. Uh, and, we're, and we're caught unaware and we can find ourselves in, 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 in an intensity of reactivity. And then at that moment, we have to be very, it's a moment of danger for us and for those around us. And we have to have had some practice or something that, some influence that can help us pause and reflect and to consider before reacting and acting out blindly. So he said, the, the, at any moment, the, you know, this practice, little by little, of, of patiently cultivating mindfulness presence of mind, refuge, and an ability to discern. If there's no mindfulness, I think Ajahn Chah would say, if there's no mindfulness, it's like we're a little crazy because a mind can be so easily swayed by all sorts of influences. The mind can be very deluded and we can assume what we're thinking about ourselves or what we're thinking about others is actually really true. You know, so any any little thought can come come up. Oh, you know, I'm really hopeless, or I'm I'm the best thing on the planet, or I'm I'm really enlightened now, or I'm not. I've lost it. You know, any thought can come up, and we can the whole sense of ourself and the whole sense of our being can be shaped by that. So we look. You know, without any mindfulness, we look. Or you know, try, trying to look for some emotion or feeling or storyline or thought to find security and find definition for ourselves it ends up being a very fragile base for our deeper well-being because, as we know, the moods can change, the thoughts can change, and we can be very susceptible to the conditioning and patterning of the mind. We can be on a roller coaster. So, um, so in this mindfulness practice, it's learning to find a deeper refuge in a place from which to contemplate 
our reactions to contemplate the mind and its reactions. Or as another great forest master, meditation master from Thailand, Ajahn Tate, would say that meditation is the art of learning to discern between the mind and the activity of the mind or the reactivity of the mind. Going back to Ajahn Chah's quote, the mind in its natural state, the heart, the jitta, mind-heart is pure, is luminous, is present, is wise, is discerning, is reflective, it can reflect on its experience. It's na- the natural state of the mind, it's present, it's aware, it has this quality, buddhi, which means knowingness, Not, not so much the knowingness of academic knowledge, which is one kind of knowledge, but it's the knowingness of, of wisdom. It can know, it can contemplate, it can discern. These are the attributes of the mind in its natural state, in its, when, it, when there's clarity, when there's gatheredness. But then the mind also has its activities and its reactivities and its conditionings. And it's those that, that, that can be activated in any moment of when the mind is touched by events in the world around us or the mind is touched by, um, receives criticism or touched by something or someone that evokes anger, or jealousy or covetousness or greed hatred and so on, and it's in those moments that we can find ourselves being overwhelmed and then dragged along by the patterning and the reactivity. So I've been thinking a lot over the the last while, and particularly with this uh, story of Oscar Pistorius and Riva Steinkamp. both idealized people. She was in the reality show and a model and stunning, and him a great hero about the danger in some ways of hero worship and idealizations. How that uh, sometimes we want to so much idealize people make people into heroes and idols that we can project all sorts of hopes onto and how dangerous that can be for them and for society. Because in a way it's impossible to to hold that. And with there's no wisdom on behalf of those that have been idealized, then it's very hard for them to really come to terms with their shadow or their darker side and to integrate that so it doesn't get to the place where it's completely split off from them and then becomes a a kind of rogue energy that can be um, destructive. And in a a certain way, one of the, the places where there's a lot of idealization is within the spiritual realms, the meditative realms, enlightenment realms. And we can so much want to come into these practices who want to be a really, you know, enlightened person. We have an idea maybe of what we should be like as a spiritual enlightened person. And it can be quite shocking for us to actually start to come to, you know, when we start to practice and we see 
the mind, we start to contemplate the mind and its reactions, and we're not being distracted from those reactions, and we can start to see some not very nice parts of the mind. So not so ideal, even in very small ways. It can be very competitive or, or can be very um, put oneself down or put others down. It can be very negative. And these are very, it's very difficult sometimes to acknowledge and accept these parts of our conditioning. Because we, you know, we often take it very, very personally. But in this practice, it's not so much about trying to become an ideal type of person that we might conjure up as a spiritual or religious person, what that might be. Someone that never makes any mistakes, someone that always knows what to do, someone that has a lot of clarity, someone that uh, has a lot of wisdom. But actually, as human beings, you know, we're not an ideal. (laughs) We are many, many different things that we can experience ourselves as, including many dark things and difficult things. And so, you know, our this mindfulness practice is not to be used to just try and repress those parts of ourselves we don't like and try and just, you know, um, create an ideal that we live within. But it's actually a way of beginning to open the mind and beginning to be able to see the whole range of our experiences as they are and our reactivity as it as they our reactions as they they emerge so in a certain way this is quite um, humbling work in the best sense of the word keeping us real. So another way of looking at uh, mindfulness is that which can contain, that which can hold awareness, mindfulness, practicing this mindfulness is that which can really uh, hold the totality of our experience, whatever that is, and then cultivating within that experience some steadiness, this samadhi, some steadiness of mind to be able to contemplate our experience. So it can contain, we're learning in a very simple way, for example, to be present for our body be present for the feelings within the body, uh, you know, which isn't always easy to be with. Yes, it's sometimes it's uh, you know, we're very unconscious about our body. We just, you know, pull our bodies along, following the mind wherever it's going, un- until the body plays up. And then we haven't got any capacity to be with the body when it plays up or when it's sick or when it's aging or when we can't do with it what we want to do because we haven't built that capacity to be with unpleasant feeling or difficult sensations. 
So in this, this as Ajahn Chah is talking about this practice, this preparation, is learning in little ways to tolerate that which isn't easy to be with. I mean, in a certain way, sitting here and doing this retreat, he told someone, well, I'm coming on a retreat, I haven't got anything to do, I'm being fed, I haven't got any worries, any stress, I just have to sit here. People say, well, that sounds wonderful. (laughs) It sounds like a great holiday. And in a way it is, but you know if you've been here just for a day that it's actually quite challenging to be with ourselves and to contain and to hold and to be present for the moods that we can go through, for the feelings and sensations within the body, for the body itself. But this practice, little by little, to be mindful, to be present for all of that, the whole range of our experience. This is part of the preparation that Ajahn Chah is talking about, part of the discernment, part of the cultivation of this quality of of presence of mind, presence of heart. Talking about this practice, this is an an analogy that the, the Buddha gave from a teaching called the Six Animals. It's this practice of the cultivation of samadhi and gatheredness and mindfulness. The Buddha said, suppose monks, suppose monks, nuns, disciples, suppose monks, a person catches six animals of different domains and different results of living. A snake, a crocodile, a bird, a dog, a jackal, and a monkey tethering each with a stout rope. Having tethered them with a stout rope, he or she fastens the ropes together in the middle and then lets go of them. Now, monks, these six animals of different domains and feeding habits would swing around and struggle, each trying to get to his or her natural domain. The snake would struggle, thinking, I'll get to the anthill. The crocodile, I'll get into the water. The bird, I'll fly up into the air. The dog, I'll make for the village. And the jackal, I'll make for the charnel ground. And the monkey, I'll head for the forest. Now, monks, when those six hungry animals grew weary, they would yield to the one that was the strongest go his way and be under his or her power. In the same way, monks, whenever a monk or nun or practitioner fails to practice and develop mindfulness as to the body, the eye struggles. This is an analogy of six animals with the six senses. The eye struggles to draw him or her towards attractive objects, while unattractive unattractive objects are repellent to him or her. The mind struggles to draw towards attractive objects of thought, while unattractive objects of thought are repellent, and so on through the six senses. This, monks, is a lack of restraint. 
and what monks is restrained. In this, a monk seeing objects with the eye is not drawn to attractive objects and is not repelled by unattractive objects. He remains with firmly established mindfulness as to the body, his mind being boundless. He or she knows in truth that liberation of the heart, that liberation by wisdom, through which unwholesome and unskillful states that have arisen pass away without remainder. Suppose then a person catches six animals as before and fastens the rope together to a stout post of a pillar. Then when those six animals grow weary, they would have to stand, crouch or lie down by the stout post or pillar. In the same way, monks, when a person practices and develops mindfulness as to the body, The eye does not struggle to draw him or her towards attractive visual objects, nor are unattractive visual objects repellent to them. The mind does not struggle to draw towards attractive objects of thought, nor are unattractive objects of thought repellent to them. This, monks, is restraint. Tethered to a stout post or pillar, monks, denotes mindfulness as to the body, Therefore, monks, this is how you must train yourself. We shall practice mindfulness as to the body, develop it, make it our vehicle, our dwelling place, our resort, and we will build it up and undertake it thoroughly. This, monks, nuns, practitioners, is how you must train yourselves. So this is very classical to the way that the Buddha taught using analogies that from around him, gathering analogies from the natural world often, from the world of animals, each animal making its way to its natural habitat. And you, know, you can think, well, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. You'd like animals to go to their natural habitat. He's making an analogy here about the senses, each of these animals representing the sense doors the thinking, the hearing, the seeing, tasting, touching, smelling. And particularly, most powerfully for us, the thinking is the tendency for the mind to go into its natural pathways and to dwell and look towards the attractive and be repelled by the unattractive. To seek that which is, you know, which, uh, which is pleasing and to be overwhelmed and reactive to that which is difficult. So in this practice of um, training the mind, because in a way this is all about a, a certain kind of training, this mindfulness is a training, it goes against that tendency of just letting the mind wander out through the senses and dwell in its preferences and its reactivities because in that process, when there's no real training, when something is very attractive, then sometimes the mind will just go towards it, and if there's no discernment, then it can just be overwhelmed with lust or greed or covetousness, and then just find, find oneself lost, and, and then creating some kind of unwholesome karma, or contrary, if the mind starts to be reactive, to that which is unattractive and getting lost in hatred and aversion. But with this training, there's a certain training 
this containment where this, if you notice the Buddha saying, tethering the senses, in other words, tethering the mind, the mind's energy that tends to run out all the time seeking and reacting through the sensory experience. This mindfulness training in a certain way is tethering the mind, bringing the mind home. It's bringing the energy of the mind home and using the slow rhythm, the earth rhythms of our embodiment to do that. So this first foundation of mindfulness that we've been practicing today is all around bringing the mind back to connect and steady itself on the rhythm of the body breath. And as you know, this is a very powerful analogy because if you've ever been and watched the natural, especially wild animals, functionings of the wild animals, they're very, you know, they're, they're very powerful and they move very powerfully towards wherever, wherever they're going in their own patterns and in their own rhythms. So the, the idea of training the mind is a bit like training a wild animal <laughs> with its tendencies. You know, it's not going to just lay down easily. These are very strong images of you know, a struggle, a sense of pulling and pushing each different way. And this is in a certain way what we come up against as meditators, really experiencing how the mind will resist and want to go to its natural domains. It's thinking of yesterday, it's planning for tomorrow, it's agitations, it's you know, how we think about ourselves as being not good enough or doing well or whatever, however we perceive ourselves, how we think about the world, how we react to the world, how we get overwhelmed by the world, despairing about the world, disappointed because of the world, covetousness, in relationship to the world. So in this training, it's actually, if you remember when we began this morning with Kitty Saro um, guiding us from the teaching of the foundations of mindfulness, this training begins with learning to put aside the world, put aside our reactivity not as an end in itself, but as a means to begin this process of gathering and strengthening the mindfulness, the capacity to be really, really present with the reality of how it is here, within this body, within this experience, which perhaps on the surface seems like nothing much, because we're so used to always distracting ourselves and looking for something different. So this is training to, in a way, get you know, Jin Chas uh, to, to begin to um, get beneath or beyond the reactivity, the seeking, the aversions, and to find a more stable base that where, where there's an ability to withstand one of this, the cultivation of samadhi or gatheredness within that, inherently, within that cultivation is the ability to withstand the push and the pull of the mind, to withstand the sensory impingement of what is pleasant and what is not pleasant, what is attractive and what is unattractive, without, without having to react so much to it. 
So we're beginning to find a refuge that can, when there's some mindfulness, it gives us the space from which to rather than react and then act out from our patterns of, particularly if we're touched very powerfully in the mind and we find ourselves reacting, being, uh, having, uh, being triggered in our patterns of um, fear or anxiety or overwhelm or aggression, finding a container and then knowing when there's mindfulness, knowing that there's the capacity to reflect on our reactions, to reflect on the mind and to discern, to discern the difference between mind and the activity of mind. So this is a patient training, as Charles said, it's um, preparation in a certain way for when, when we can't move or when things really hit that we can't get rid of. of its own. <laughs> so it's a patient patient process. And sometimes I you know to begin to um, sometimes we're very addicted to the reactions of the mind because it, it's that which gives us a sense of really being alive and engaged. And we don't feel there's an alivement or depth when there's not much happening. So in a certain way, meditation, we're attuning to being able to really savor a deeper place of contentment, a deeper place of, of simplicity. Being able to be with the simplicity, say, of a breath. To be really, to begin to really be nourished by the breathing, to be able to be with the body, the simplicity, and, and perhaps really listen to the body, really receive the body, rather than just, over, you know, being unconscious to our body. To really be with the simpler processes of the unfolding of a day rather than necessarily having to seek a sense of intensity to validate our experience and our embodiment as something special. Spirituality has to be some special experience. But to realize actually in the very simplicity of this practice, being with the breath, that we begin to cultivate this training of a ground that isn't so addicted to its reaction, a mind that isn't so addicted to its reactions, 
to its projections, to its longings, to its anxieties, to its fears, to its hopes, to its disappointments. So that kind of mind, when there is some strength through this cultivation of moments of being here, moments of gatheredness, moments of mindfulness, moments of being with the body, moments of knowing a ground, the ground of the mind that is beyond the reactions of the mind, that kind of mind, when there's a gatheredness of mind, with strength of mindfulness, that mind that then is, is able to turn to the reactions or to the problems that we may have or to the contemplations that we may have as regards our life or the world around us, that kind of mind has a very different quality to it. It's able to have insight, it's able to have clarity, it's able to discern. It's rather than the mind that's just flooded and overwhelmed and reactive and, and, and lost in its own thinking and its own projections. That kind of mind that's, that's gathered, that has some samadhi, has some power to it. So that when that turns to a problem or to a contemplation, then insight can, and revelation and understanding and intuitive knowledge can arise. Which is a very different quality. It still can be in touch with the world, but it's a very different ability in terms of our relationship to the world than a mind that's reactive and overwhelmed and weak in a way, not able to withstand and be withstand the impingement of whatever's arising from within or whatever's touching us from the world around. That sort of mind, when it's touched by powerful passions that may lead us to some violent act is able to withstand and restrain and uh, avoid the unfortunate consequences of acting unskillfully. And that sort of mind has a choice. It can choose to discern and choose to respond rather than be forced just by the habit of instinct. I'm sorry that in um, the cultivation of Olympic athletes like Oster Pistorius, those incredible heroic feats, that there wasn't some matching of that in terms of some inner cultivation of mindfulness or inner cultivation of discernment or ability to to really hold that as highly as such as, as an equal high regard as as the as the as um, athletic prowess it may have saved him in the moment of extreme passion whatever emerged from his conditioning and probably connected with uh, the culture and the more deeper conditioning of the culture he was within. When that kind of moment hit, 
instead of acting out with great violence, with such devastating results for himself and, of course, for his loved one, who's now dead, for the whole country, it could have been a very different outcome. To withstand the heat of passion and not have to be overwhelmed, but to have choice of how to respond is is an evolutionary step, really, for us as human beings. Because we are capable and have been capable of incredible devastation through our unchecked um, passions, our desires to conquer and to own and to exploit heedlessly in our desires to oppress and, and our inability to deal with our shadow, our anger, and our hatred, which we all have. We all have, to some degree or another, we're all susceptible to these kinds of impulses. So we shouldn't feel if they emerge. We shouldn't, in this work, we're building capacity to be able to withstand and to be realistic about what it is to be human, both the, the heroic and the glorious and the ideal and the potentiality, but in equal measure also the dark and the despairing, and to withstand them all and to be able to discern wisely and have capacity and strength of mind to respond from wise contemplation than, rather than just blind reactivity is one of the fruits of this moment-by-moment practice of mindfulness. So as Ajahn Charles said, may we indeed know and watch our hearts and may we know that our heart is pure. But when emotions come to color it, let our minds be like a tightly woven net to catch emotions and feelings that come so that we can investigate them before we react. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.